Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. When he was 21, a man named Lee Scott, who had been born in Kansas, was living in a trailer with his wife and son. It would have been hard for him then to imagine how rich he was going to get. The answer was very. Lee Scott was an incredibly interesting person. Rebecca Henderson, who herself is a pretty interesting person, is the author of the book Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. We'll come back to Henderson's own story, but first, Scott's. In 2005 alone, his pay package approached $9 million. But rewarded as he was, he was also under attack, for in some people's view, ruining America, because of the company he ran. Scott had come to run that company pretty much by accident. He had been employed by a trucking company in Arkansas, which around 1980 needed to get a bill paid by one of their clients. He showed up and he said, you know, you owe us money. And uh, the guy at Walmart was sufficiently impressed to offer him a job. And Scott said to himself, well, I'm not working for this company. They can't pay their bills. In fact, Walmart could pay their bills. They initially thought that the bill that Scott's trucking company presented them with was an error. And eventually, he did go work at Walmart, where he rose up the ranks to become CEO. And what's interesting about Scott is he really had an awakening. Henderson, who is also a professor at Harvard and Harvard Business School, says, We're in a moment when capitalism may seem like it's breaking apart. It's not really solving the big problems. And often it's not. There's a reason she writes about a world on fire. And it isn't just her who's noticed. Polls show that Americans under 40 are split between whether the best path ahead is socialism or capitalism. That's a huge shift from older generations. Henderson argues that actually responsible, well-regulated capitalism is one of the best paths out of the environmental and inequality disasters we currently face. And even if she's not winning the battle for hearts and minds, she says the power of capitalism to reform the system is clear. Which brings us back to Walmart. You know, I think of Walmart as kind of the exemplar of 20th century capitalism. That's what made them great back in the 80s and 90s. You know, drive wages down, buy stuff at scale, don't care about your footprint. It's all about the low price, low price, low price. And at the time, if you'd asked them, they would have said they were very purpose-driven. It was all about making goods available to people who otherwise had never seen these products. And it was so classically 20th century capitalist. And yeah, there are a few negative side effects, but that's not our business. That's not our job. That drew lots of people to Walmart and repelled plenty of others. By 1990, it had the highest revenue of any retailer in America. By 2000, it was on track to becoming the largest company in the U.S. But when Lee Scott became CEO that year, there was also deep, deep skepticism. Walmart seemed to be hurting communities, to be paying stingy wages, to care only about steamrolling the competition. And then... In August of 2005, something unexpected happened, and it changed Walmart permanently. We have been abandoned by our own country. Hurricane Katrina will go down in history as one of the worst storms ever to hit an American coast. But the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina will go down as one of the worst abandonments of Americans on American soil ever in U.S. history. 
That was Aaron Broussard, the president of Jefferson Parish, Louisiana, speaking on NBC a few days after Hurricane Katrina hit. Why, he wondered, had so much responsibility been left to folks like him and to mayors and sheriffs? Sheriff Harry Lee said that if American government would have responded like Walmart has responded, we wouldn't be in this crisis. Individual Walmart employees started to do what they believed to be the right thing. There was one person who took a bulldozer, broke down the walls of the Walmart and started distributing for free clothes and water and food. The government response was terrible. And Scott saw this employee and saw the response that this was getting. Like people inside Walmart were incredibly excited, like, hey, Walmart is helping. Walmart was getting great press. And he said, why don't we do everything we can to address this disaster? And he said to his senior team, and this was revolutionary inside Walmart, he said to them, do not think about the bottom line. Just take every truck we can and ship whatever we can down to New Orleans to help people. Rebecca Henderson talked to people who were on Lee Scott's call when he said to just start helping people. And she said they were incredulous. This was Walmart, the firm that always, always tried to save themselves and their customers a penny? Well, Walmart ended up spending tens of millions of dollars to help those trying to cope with the hurricane's aftermath. And the effort changed Lee Scott as a leader and maybe as a person. And that means addressing problems like climate change. Let us commit to completely decarbonizing Walmart. And at the time he made this commitment, it was completely unprecedented. There was no major U.S. company that had made anything like this commitment. And uh, what, what's interesting in talking to the people who were there and, and working for him is it was clear he meant it. And it wasn't throw the bottom line out the window. You know, Walmart's a public company. You have to make money. But he said, I'm really serious about this. You have to find a way. Tell me how we cut carbon emissions. Tell me how we save energy. Tell me how we get rid of waste and bring all the skills of 20th century Walmart to this 21st century problem. What's interesting is, you know, they've increased, um, as you say, like energy efficiency on their stores, double digits. I think a lot of people would be surprised to think Walmart, like, really? Like, this is, the, I mean, I, I feel like that's not Walmart's public image, though maybe they would like it to be. But it's it's really interesting that they were out front doing that. Maybe you can comment that, on that. And I just wonder why. I'll never forget coming back from my first visit to Walmart's headquarters in Bentonville. Mm -hmm. And I was all bubbly with having talked to the CEO and his senior team and so excited about what they were doing. And our son, who's in his early 20s, happened to be in town. And I, I started bubbling on about Walmart. And Harry looked at me and he said, Mom, I believe you because you're my mom, but no one else will. You know, and so it's really interesting. Walmart did not publicize their climate efforts because at the time they thought that people thought, well, you're being sustainable. That either means that you're giving me less good stuff mm -hmm. or that it's expensive. Okay, right. <laughs> and neither of those things are good if you're Walmart. So they didn't make a big deal about what they were doing. They just quietly and aggressively started to make change. And 
as you may know, something similar is going on now. The current CEO came to believe that wages were too low, that it was affecting the productivity of his employees and his ability to hire, that morale was too low, that in fact, the 20th century model was in fact broken. And I think my, my internal belief is just as Walmart was an, the exemplar of the 20th century firm, they reached its limits fastest. And so they started to switch. They were like, oh, this is not working as a business model. It's just not working. And so you've got, again, this mix between we've got to change the business model and, oh, yes, it is absolutely the right thing to do. So then I guess the argument for why you would increase wages or why you would try to cut carbon emissions as a company, which obviously is not like necessarily serving the individual shareholder, or maybe it is, but is also because you're like, I can't live in a world where the people who are working for me are not making enough money to make ends meet. They're not happy. I can't live in a world where the seas are rising. And like, I, I can't really live in this world that's being created by the capitalism that we knew before. Kara, you, you've really caught, I think, the essence of what's happening. I can't live in a world like this. And therefore, I will use all my skills and intelligence and focus to fix it in a profitable way. So Scott turned to his people and said, take energy out of the system, cut our energy bills. And once they started looking, they discovered that there was a huge amount of money to be made in doing so. They re-engineered the trucking fleet, for example. Simply re-engineering the trucks to use less fuel saved them a billion a billion dollars a year, even mm. for Walmart, that's a lot of money. Right, right. They found that when they started to, you know, why are we generating all this waste? Let's stop generating all this waste. It cut their costs. When they started to look at what was happening on the shop floor, they said, you know, we're paying a fortune in hiring and training. If we can reduce turnover rates, that will cut our costs. Wait, our customers are increasingly uncomfortable with the shopping experience. They can't find what they want. If we improve our relationship with our employees and they feel more trained and empowered, we will do better with our customers. I mean, when uh, Doug McMillan, the current CEO, announced that he was raising wages really quite significantly for many of his workforce, his investors freaked. I mean, the stock price dropped about 20% in a day. Wow. Um, yes. So, you know, his investors initially had your response, right. but he was quite right. It has been good for Walmart. The figures are very clear. Mm. Productivity is back up. Turnover is down. And in fact, mm. he announced another major set of wage increases just uh, earlier this year. But I don't think they would have done this without the oh my God, I can't live in this world feeling. Hmm. And for me, this is all about taking that feeling and translating it into bottom line focus, business reality. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Rebecca Henderson. She's the author of Capitalism in a World on Fire. She's a professor at Harvard and a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research. We're going to pause here briefly, and then we'll come back to talk about how capitalism might be undergoing a revolution and how CEOs are dealing with the concern that while they are keeping tabs on their stock price, some of the most important markets for their products are watching sea levels rise slowly all around them. 
We've got more on the story of Walmart and its former CEO, Lee Scott, and Hurricane Katrina that's on our website, innovationhub.org. From GPH Radio and PRX, this is Innovation Hub. Be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. In the late 1970s and early 80s, Rebecca Henderson got a degree in mechanical engineering. She wanted to understand how things worked. After graduation, when she got a job with the consulting firm McKinsey, the reality of how business worked became very clear, very fast. Working for McKinsey in the early 80s meant shutting plants in Northern England. I became really obsessed with the question of why large companies don't respond to changes in the world around them. You know, I was working with 100-year-old companies that couldn't seem to see that the industry had shifted. The world was reshaping itself, moving towards the economic landscape that we see around us now. Billions of people were coming online in poorer countries, and they were now both competitors and collaborators with folks in richer countries. So in some ways, inequality was falling. But in wealthier countries, inequality was about to spike as factories in places like England and the U.S. shuttered forever and moved overseas. Rebecca Henderson took a look at what was happening. She could see obvious problems. Too often, though, the leaders in charge of the various companies that she worked with, they just could not grasp what was headed their way. I remember it is incredibly interesting. There was one company, for example, that was making dinnerware. And they hired us and they said, you know, something must be going on. Our share of the market is stable. And yet all around us, people seem to be buying more and more plates. Uh, the whole economy was booming. And we dug into the data and discovered that they had failed to include Japanese companies in their definition of the market. And the Japanese were eating their lunch. I mean, they had like a 30 or 40% share of the market. And it was this, we don't even take the Japanese seriously. It didn't even occur to us to ask the market research company to sample how many people were buying Japanese plates. It's the kind of willful blindness. I wasn't traumatized, I was just puzzled. Henderson then went and got a PhD in economics, basically in a quest to understand what she was witnessing in England. And now she's a professor at Harvard and the author of the book Capitalism in a World on Fire. She says we are, once again, at a juncture, a time when business needs to act to actually save the world. And she thinks business can play a massive role in addressing both the climate crisis and inequality. And it's a role we ignore at our peril though she believes governments need to help business by setting out guardrails, like pricing carbon emissions. And forward-looking companies can actually lean on governments to create those guardrails, which will help bring both them and their competitors in line. If that happens, then the tools of capitalism are being used to make capitalism better, to pay the cost of what something is really worth. 
The question is whether companies will be able to see how they can change before change swallows them. Henderson grappled with this decades ago in Northern England, and after that, when she got a job at MIT. I spent more than 20 years as the Eastman Kodak Professor of Management, which was just a coincidence, but it was a deeply ironic one because that's what I was doing. I was working with firms like Kodak and Nokia and Motorola, firms that were at one time incredibly successful and yet couldn't seem to understand what was happening to them. Hmm. And as I spent 20 years doing that, I became one of the world's experts on why change is so hard, sometimes a little depressing, sometimes kind of fun. And then energy companies started showing up in my office, European energy companies. This is about 15 years ago now. And they said, look, the world is changing. We know we have to move to renewables, but that's a complete shift in our business model. How do we do that? And that was sort of my mainstream. I had an answer to that and I started working with energy companies. And the more I worked with them, the more it became clear that they could not move without government policy. Hmm. That fossil fuels were so cheap that replacing them with renewables was just a huge stretch. Remember, this is 10, 15 years ago. And so I became obsessed with the question of why we didn't have decent public policy to address climate change. I'm a tree hugger. I used to be a closet tree hugger. Now I'm a right out there, in front, tree hugger. And uh, this is about the time of Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth. And so I was very much aware that climate change was a huge issue. I really wanted to help these energy companies. And I thought, why don't all the big firms in the world get together and tell government that we need a sensible carbon policy? When you burn fossil fuels, you cause immense damage. The real price of coal is probably nearly triple what we pay for coal-fired electricity. Hmm. And if we were to price fossil fuels at their real cost, it would be easy to transition to a carbon-free economy. Hmm. Not, you know, not really quick. We would have to invest a great deal of capital, but it would be clearly worth doing and the economy would move. And yet, no business people were lobbying government. And then I started thinking, like, what is going on here? Why is it that we have a capitalism that is, yes, amazing, driving the creation of huge amounts of wealth and innovation and opportunity, but is also, oh dear, destroying the planet? But I wonder if people on the other side, like investors on Wall Street, I mean, because the reason these companies exist is because people invest in their shares, uh, generally. Um, I wonder if people say, look, this is just too hard uh, when, when you're an investor. And it, it could be you're an individual investor or it could be just like you manage mutual funds, which include a lot of our investments, a lot of our retirements. It's just too hard. Like, yeah, OK, so maybe we say oil companies we're not investing in because fossil fuels. But then where do you draw the line? You know, do you say, I don't know, I'm not going to invest in clothing companies because I don't know what they're doing in their supply chain. Maybe there's abuse like child labor going on in this supply chain, but I can't really tell. Should I invest in this other company that, you know, uh, sells fruit? Because I don't know how, you know, people are being treated. I don't know how they're dealing with the earth and with pesticides. Do you see what I'm saying? Like, it seems like such a slippery slope. How do you know which companies are good and which are bad? And then I feel like people are just like, I don't know. I throw up my hands. Let's just invest in the companies that'll make us the most money. 
Oh, well, that's always the temptation, but I, I think there's good news. I think the fuss around so-called ESG metrics, environmental, social, and governance metrics, is very good news. The big banks, the big accounting firms, the major investment houses, they are all pushing the firms that they work with to measure, to measure what they do and to measure their impacts. And um, we still have a ways to go. It took 50 years to develop modern financial accounting. It's going to take a little while to get this accounting right. Mm. But we will have so-called material metrics. That is, they really affect the performance of the firm. Material, auditable, replicable metrics. And then investors will be able to make choices. How do you trade off a firm that's emitting a gazillion tons of carbon dioxide against a firm that is creating huge problems in the supply chain? Mm -hmm. We can, I know this makes many people uncomfortable, but I also think it's really important. We can translate those impacts into harm to human health and harm to human society in real dollars. And then we can have an argument about who we're going to fund and who we're not. And best of all, we can push the firms to improve their performance. Once we have good measures, you know, what gets measured gets managed, right? So once we have good measures, customers, employees, investors, regulators can all start pushing firms to clean up their act. So I'm, I'm not willing to despair yet. Absolutely not. You've outlined like in here in some ways is capitalism as a solution to the problems that capitalism has created. But there are people hearing this story and thinking, that's great, but how could Walmart, uh, there's a limit to this, right? How, how can Walmart possibly be really saving the planet and simultaneously encouraging consumerism, right? They're, they're offering things at low prices that allow you for good or for bad, to buy a lot of things. So instead of a few clothes, you have a lot of clothes. Instead of a few toys for your child, you have a lot of toys. Or you know, I mean, there's only so far they're going to be able to take this because otherwise it's the end of their business model, isn't it? For sure. Absolutely for sure. I mean, here I am writing and speaking about how business can make a big difference. Do I think business can save the world? Absolutely not. I think we need a huge political and social and cultural movement if we're to save the world. My shtick is business can help. Okay. That it would be incredibly helpful if 20, 25% of the world's businesses were on this wavelength, that they could help to catalyze change in industry after industry, that they could join together to address problems they can't address individually. So no one's bottom line is hurt. The whole industry benefits because we work together. And most importantly, they could go to government. I mean, Walmart, for example, has been very vocal saying you need to raise the minimum wage because Walmart's trying to raise wages if all of its competitors are charging yeah. less. You know, that doesn't work for them. So this kind of action, I think, can be helpful. Is it the full solution? Absolutely not. So that's an interesting question. How much is government, how much have they been moved by companies? Um, I mean, I think about like the Chamber of Commerce, which represents many companies, uh, often speaks for kind of business, is generally thought of as a kind of Republican-leaning entity. Uh, a lot of Democrats do want to uh, raise minimum wage, but this has become like a bit of a, a partisan struggle. But if 
companies, which often do lean a bit more Republican and executives, if they're saying, no, no, really, we should raise those wages, why do we continue to be at an impasse? I don't know if you've noticed, but we have some major political problems at the moment. I have, I've noticed a few. <laughs> the government is huge. I mean, politics is incredibly polarized. My hope is that these kinds of progressive businesses might, in fact, be able to address some of this polarization. For many years, the Many people in the Republican Party have said, you know, government intervention is bad. We don't want to interfere with the market. Regulation is bad. Just get rid of it. And by and large, they were hugely successful. I mean, massive deregulation. Minimum wage hasn't increased in real terms for, I think, 40 years, for example. Mm. Um, And I think we're really seeing the limits of that, that, I mean, what the pandemic showed us very clearly that we needed a functioning, capable government, that we needed a government that could support those at the bottom, that there was a significant fraction of our population that was having to work two jobs and still couldn't afford health care or time off and didn't have decent benefits. So I think we're seeing the limits of the extreme polarization. And, and we've seen change. I mean, the Chamber of Commerce, for example, came out publicly saying climate change was a thing and we Mm -hmm. should do something about it. That is huge. That begins to open a space where some members of the Republican Party might be willing to say, well, you know, this really is a problem. The, uh, The Republican Party is the only major political party on the planet that denies, that officially denies the reality of climate change or the need to do anything about it. And I think having a business address these issues is one of the most effective ways to begin to change that conversation. We're going to take our last break here. We will come back for a final few minutes with Rebecca Henderson. She's the author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. If you want to hear this whole segment, we're on Apple Podcasts. You can also find the show at innovationhub.org. And let us know what you think. We're on Facebook. We're also on Twitter, iHubRadio. You can also email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Sometimes the unexpected happens, and sometimes it happens and happens and happens. In 2001, Eric Bertolini was diagnosed with gamma delta T-cell lymphoma. He was 16 at the time, and it didn't look like he would survive. His father, Mark, could not come to terms with what he was being told. And he refused to believe that his son could not be helped. And he got totally involved in the medicine and, the, and his son's treatment. And he spent time in the hospital. And, and he decided that our healthcare system was badly broken. Bertolini said he felt like Eric was treated, quote, as a disease, not a person. But as writer Rebecca Henderson notes, he refused to give up on his son and started spending his time studying medicine. Eric, against all odds, did recover. 
A few years later, Mark Bertolini was in a bad skiing accident, and he was on fentanyl patches, Oxycontin, Vicodin, the list goes on. He didn't like the direction things were going, and he turned to yoga and acupuncture, which would have been unusual enough, but Bertolini worked for a major healthcare company. And he became CEO of Aetna determined to try and make a difference in the broader healthcare system. And he's giving all these speeches and he's talking to employees and he's very approachable, very purpose-driven. And his employees start saying to him by social media and face-to-face, -face, oh, Mark, you know, thanks for the nice speech, but I have to work two jobs. You are not paying me enough to live on. And he discovered that something like 12% of Aetna's workforce was not making a living wage, that they were actually being paid the minimum wage. And these were the people answering his phone. And this is a health insurance company. Health insurance is one of the most hated industries in the country. And, you know, he, he thought, you know, whoa, no wonder maybe these phone calls aren't going so well. Henderson is a professor at Harvard, and she's the author of the book Capitalism in a World on Fire. She says that Bertolini knew something had to change. He wanted to pay everyone who worked for the company a living wage and make it so they could afford health care. And that meant on average about a 30% increase in everyone's cash compensation. And the senior team like, were like, wait, wait, Mark, you know, we have to maximize shareholder value. We're just paying prevailing wage, you know, back off. And Mark said, do you not understand what I'm saying? We are raising these wages and I promise you we will see it in productivity and organizational commitment. Bertolini made the change public at a hotel in Jacksonville, Florida. When he made the announcement, people started crying because they said, this is a real job. For the first time, I feel real respect, real dignity, and I can take care of my children. And, you know, the big puzzle to me is why, why don't we do that everywhere? Henderson says, doing capitalism the way it's been done is bumping up against a tough reality. The old school approach is probably not going to keep working much longer. We tend to say we cannot fix the huge problems we face. Inequality, exclusion, climate change, biodiversity, because we cannot afford it. This is not true. We have the technology and we have the resources to address these problems, to arrest climate change, preserve biodiversity, pay everyone a decent wage, give people real jobs. We have the resources and the technology. But we have persuaded ourselves it cannot be done. It's not an economic box we're in. It's an ideological cognitive box. Henderson argues there is a transformative role out there for capitalism, a role that's often championed by CEOs who've had transformative experiences themselves. But Americans, especially young adults, increasingly don't trust capitalism to help with the problems they see in front of them. Polls show that declining trust, and Rebecca Henderson has heard it herself. It's a huge shift. And um, when I talk to groups of people under 30, they often look at me and say, reimagine capitalism, Rebecca, shouldn't we just um, throw it out mm -hmm. the window? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a huge amount of rage and cynicism directed at business. And I think the perception even that business is evil and certainly business has done some terrible things. That's really clear. 
I think that feeling is very real. Sometimes when young people say they want socialism, what they mean is they want decent healthcare and like reasonable maternity benefits. <laughs> I don't think they actually mean state ownership of the means of production, but it still worries me because I personally think that we will only solve our problems through the dynamism and productivity of capitalism. I think, you know, the alternative systems that we've seen have terrible track records. So I find it really disconcerting. And for me, that's an argument for business to move. You know, two years ago, when I said to audiences of senior executives, you have to address these problems. If you don't, there will be significant civil and political unrest. They would sort of lean back in their chairs and cross their arms. Hmm. Now, when I say that, they lean forward and they say, could we talk about exactly what you have in mind? I mean, it's a very, very different space. I think the combination of pandemic and the enormous suffering it caused, and the fact that the immediate effects of climate change are becoming very evident, and the death of George Floyd, mm -hmm. and the real recognition of fundamental structural racism in this country, that has really changed the conversation among senior business people. I've been working on this for 15 years, and I think I've seen more change in the last 18 months than I did in the 13 years before that. And do you think that it, even if they realize that there's a lot of gridlock in D.C., you think businesses are at a point where they're like willing to take the ball and run with it and just say, like, we're not... Okay, so maybe we're not pricing carbon and maybe we're not doing this and that, but we're willing to do a lot anyway. I think there's a great deal of talk and talk is just talk, but it's mm. an important first step towards action. Okay. There are groups of firms gearing themselves up to work together. Let's work on education together. Let's work on healthcare together. Let's work on climate change together. That's really important. And there's an entirely new conversation about transparency and political spending, about whether firms should be pushing government and pushing the system to pull money out of politics. It's so corrupting, and it's one of the things that contributes to the huge cynicism around the existing system. That conversation is happening in ways it really didn't before. Mm. So, you know, the thing I think that makes me most optimistic right now is the conversation around changing the rules, changing the accounting rules, using so-called ESG, environmental, social and governance metrics. Okay. Because if we don't change what we measure, we won't change behavior. So, I mean, there's real, real change happening. Is it enough? Is it going to happen tomorrow? Absolutely not. Is it better than nothing? Yes. So to switch it from business leaders to consumers, in your experience, how much more are consumers willing to pay if they're told, like, this is sustainable? Or, you know, if something's going to cost you a little more to, let's say, pay a living wage to the people at your company or to use solar power instead of coal or whatever it is, are people, are the consumers, the people who walk into the store, which is to say us, are we willing to take that on? No. There are only a few places where people are willing to pay more. High status goods like okay. Teslas. Okay, okay. Organic food because people care about what they put in their bodies. Okay. And there are a few demographics. So let's see, pointy-headed intellectuals from Cambridge with English accents, women, 
They'll pay a bit more. Most people will not. What they will do is switch their purchasing behavior. So if you can persuade a consumer that this product is just as good and is priced at just the same price, but is also easier on the planet and pays people a decent wage and doesn't have child abuse in their supply chain, people will buy that in preference. And you're seeing share gains for these purpose-driven companies as a result. That might change, Cara. There's some really interesting data emerging about the buying habits of people in their 20s and some evidence that they're willing to pay more. But most people, they'll switch. They'll give you share growth, but they won't pay more. I was going to say, that doesn't sound that impressive that we're like, this company saves the planet. It, It treats people better. I'm not willing to pay more, but I might buy it if it's exactly the same price. Like, that doesn't make us sound that good. <laughs> it's, it's not as bad as you think. Okay. You know, most people, when they make a buying decision, it's like in 20 seconds. They're not really paying attention. Mm-hmm. The place you're seeing a real shift and real pressure as a result is among employees. Employees are increasingly unwilling to work for companies that aren't on this wavelength. I have a friend who called me up five years ago. He's the CEO of a medium-sized company. And he said, hi, Rebecca. You know I I think this sustainability stuff is, is really just bunk, right? And I said, yeah, Fred, I know that. That's not his real name. I said, I know you know that. He said, but everyone I'm trying to hire thinks it's a big deal. Would you come and talk to us about it, please? And and so I did. And so he's actually become a very purpose-driven CEO and the business is doing extremely well. But he was open to the idea. And I have met so many people who shifted, not because they had a transformative personal experience, but because everyone they were trying to hire insisted that they have at least a decent story in this area. And that makes sense, right? Where you work is where you spend all your time. It's where your identity is bound up. And so firms are moving, I think, because employees are shifting, less because consumers are shifting. When do you think, you talk a lot, you write a lot about um, the cost of carbon. You know, tens of uh, thousands of people a year in the U.S. die because of pollution um, and other effects uh, related to greenhouse gases. When will we start pricing those external costs um, of carbon into the price that we pay, you know, like at the gas pump or for electricity created by coal? I wish I knew. It would make so much difference. You know, I I sometimes say if, if I hold $10 worth of coal-fired electricity in my hands, you know, if my hands have a cloud of electrons, it could mm-hmm. power your cell phone for about 10 years, which is a pretty good deal. But burning the coal to create those electrons caused at least $8 worth of harm to human health. And $8 worth of harm to human health, that sounds so academic. What does it mean? It means people with respiratory diseases, which made them much more susceptible to COVID. It means millions of people dying worldwide because they're breathing in small particulates and mercury and lead. And another $8 worth of climate damage. And again, $8 worth of climate damage. What does that mean? That means the major coastal cities underwater. A third of Bangladesh was underwater last summer. More than 40 
million acres burned in Australia. Insect populations are declining. Bird populations are declining. I mean, we are destroying the place we live in. We are burning down the house for short-term advantage. And if the cost of all the junk we threw into the atmosphere was included in the price, that would change our buying behavior. Now, you would have to make sure that if you did, say, increase the price of gasoline, Mm. that it wasn't regressive, that you sent a check to every... uh, My favorite scheme is, is impose a carbon tax, take all that money, divide it by the number of people in the country and send everyone a check. If you did that, it turns out that the bottom, I think 60% of the income distribution will come out ahead. Uh, That yes, they would see a rise in in what they pay for gasoline, but the check would more than make up for that. And what it would do is we would say, oh, I'm causing harm when I drive and when I fly. Carbon-free alternatives would look Mm. cheaper, Mm. much cheaper. Well, and it sounds too like there's this kind of tipping point uh, where in some ways unfettered capitalism is good for companies that have a carbon footprint right now. But also you say like global warming will shrink the U.S. economy. So you're there's the question of, you know, is there unfettered capitalism now or later? Sometimes people say we cannot afford to change. As a society, we must change. It's very expensive to keep using fossil fuels. Huge cost in human health, enormous bill that we're going to be paying for hundreds of years for damage to the climate. So as an us, we must address this problem. Individual companies have the temptation to just keep doing what they're doing. Because, hey, you know, I can't solve it alone and it's a long way off. And so the great challenge of our time, I think, is to move from a focus on me right now to a focus on us and later. And humans historically have been good at that. That's what families are, right? Mm -hmm. No, you have to share your toys. No, you can't eat everything right now. Um, We know how to solve those problems, but it does mean renewing and rebuilding our communities and our faith in each other and learning to act together to address these problems. Rebecca Henderson is a professor at Harvard Business School. She's a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and the author of Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Rebecca, thank you so much for being here. Cara, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Find out more about Rebecca's work on changing capitalism at our website, innovationhub.org. And finally today, I want to talk for a minute about a very different business-related story that clearly struck a chord with many of you. I was actually on my way home from the hospital and listening to the program, and it's sort of like it was kind of a light bulb went off. A few weeks ago, we asked whether email the sheer volume of it, the distracting nature of it. Well, could it be thwarting your ability to get real work done? Well, I was listening to the broadcast that you had on WNYC, I believe it was. And, um, you know, as I heard everything about the emails that how uh, companies are uh, expecting people to answer all the time. Uh, When you're working nowadays, uh, you're almost working 24-7. 
That's Julio, who's in IT. And before that, you heard from Ethan, who's an orthopedic surgeon. And I'm going to say, judging from the feedback we got, email is not, generally speaking, adding a whole lot to your work life, which was precisely the point that our guest, Cal Newport, made. Newport argued it's terrible to change up what you're doing all the time. He calls it context shifting. It's basically toggling between email and a task that demands deep thinking, like writing a memo or designing a building or writing computer code. And I spend a lot of time trying to understand the actual neuroscience behind this. But but the short summary is if you have to constantly tend these online conversations, it means you have to constantly context shift. You know, what's going on here? Back to my work. Right. What's going on here? Back to my work. And this context shifting is a cognitive disaster. It, it lowers our cognitive capacity. It also exhausts us. It makes us feel anxious. It makes us feel fatigued with our work. I mean, if you design from scratch, what is the worst possible way to do work with your brain? Forcing people to check an inbox once every six minutes would be very high up on your list. Newport is a professor of computer science at Georgetown University, and he spent the last few years trying to understand the depths of the cognitive nightmare as he sees it, that digital devices are creating for us. Apparently, lots of folks listening to my conversation with him have been living that nightmare. Here's Julio, the IT worker again. There was one executive I remember. I don't know how this guy worked. He used to travel all over the world, every different time zone. And he used to send emails at all different times. I could not believe how how he worked, this guy. I, I couldn't believe how he lived. <laughs> His assistant was expected to answer his emails within half hour, the most. His assistant finally had a breakdown because of that. Ethan, the surgeon, said that email presents a problem for doctors for at least a couple of simple reasons. First, it eats up your time. Really, they take away from overall clinical time interacting with patients and and treating patients in a, in a meaningful way. The tricky thing, though, if you're dealing with sick patients is that you never know which emails really matter and which ones are less important. Any one of those messages could be a major problem. And I don't know that. I see a little icon on the top of my medical record screen and, you know, it says whatever. I have six unread messages. One of those could be one of my postoperative patients that's having a, a postoperative complication. Uh, so I really don't know what I'm getting into when I'm when I click that box. He argues that talking things out by phone or in person, which is how it used to be done, would be far better than electronic communication. And he thinks the volume of emails is contributing to physician burnout. But we didn't just hear from people in medicine or IT. Sometimes there is a real expectation, at least in my office, that people respond within 10 minutes, within half an hour. And... It's just not sustainable. That means that they sit in front of their computer all day, ready to jump on any email that comes in, and they expect everyone they correspond with to do the same thing. And that's not a way to do any sort of thinking, planning, reading type of work. Steve works for the federal government, and he is singing Cal Newport's tune. Newport argued on our air that email has become so central to work, it's kind of displaced actual work. The fact that we are just used to this notion that in many jobs today, the communication about work now takes up all of the working hours to the point where we actually do the work that we might have done during nine to five, 15 years ago. We do it at 7 a.m. or we do mm -hmm. it at 9 p.m. after the kids mm -hmm. go to bed. 
mm-hmm. we're just accepting this. But if you if you came in a time machine from 1980 to 2021 and you saw this, you would say, are you kidding me? This is crazy. Indeed, Newport thinks that the nation's productivity may be taking a major hit from how inefficiently we're working. But then again, email mostly displays snail mail and faxes for a reason. So the email made things quicker, but it also was a record so that if you had a dispute, you could pull it up. You could show it to people. You could verify details while you were doing your work. Carol has worked in sales for more than 30 years, and she says that email was so efficient when it came in that people who adopted it quickly ran circles around those who didn't. But it also protected people who once might have taken the fall for misremembering a phone conversation or an in-person conversation, even if the mistake wasn't really theirs. Many, many women are in support roles. And when somebody's looking for somebody to blame for something big that happened or that cost a lot of money, women need to be able to defend themselves. It wasn't my typo. It wasn't, you know, a decision that I made. I Most recently, I am dealing with Japan overnight, and I'm using emails in this way to say, look, it was not me who made this decision. It was made by a project manager, and here's his email. If you want to hear my whole conversation with Cal Newport, it is on our podcast feed. The episode is called Emails Death Grip, and it's also on our website, innovationhub.org. Thanks so much for all the feedback that we received on this one. Email may have its downsides, but this was not one of them. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We also had production help from Abby Bagini. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Mm-hmm.